You're listening to audio from the 2022 Liturgy Collective Conference, a gathering for the promotion of rest, connection, and growth. For more information on upcoming conferences, visit liturgycollective.com. So when Tim invited me to be a part of this and told me that the theme was rest uh, and the rhythms of rest, I thought, I have just the thing to talk about. It's the exact opposite of that. Um, I, it's good to be in this room. It's funny, I, just standing over here for a second, the, the people that, have, that I just walked past and said hello to, um, conferences like these, one of the things that's beautiful about them is, is there tends to become an overlap in friendships from a bunch of different times of your life and a bunch of different stages of ministry. And, uh, and it's just, it's a beautiful thing. So I'm glad to be here. What I want to tell you about today is, this, really, I'm going to tell you a story. And that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you a story. It is about uh, the only painting that Vincent Van Gogh ever sold. Uh, he just sold one uh, when he was alive. And part of the reason I wanted to tell this story is because I know that in the world of... Um, Worship leading in the world of of um, working in churches and being in the creative space that uh, many of us uh, in here probably have a, th- a thing we do and then another thing we do and then a third thing we do and then a fourth thing that we're trying to get off the ground and there's lots of side hustles and those are the kinds of things that we can pour ourselves into um, and it becomes sort of what we are and who we do in the world or, or, and, and who we do what we do in the world and who we are right is is this collection of things that we do um, and and with the idea of that we're building something uh, or, or at least we're trying to build something and uh, when I came upon this this story and, and got into the research of of this painting from Vincent van Gogh um, it just seems to possibly align with a lot of themes that are present in your own life. So let me tell you a story. We'll start with Scripture. Ecclesiastes 1, 7 to 8. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. The postman's letter, dated 15 November 1889, sat face down on the table by the window. Octave Maus, the founder of the Brussels Art Exposition, had extended an invitation which read, the association requests you, sir, to kindly let us know as soon as possible if you accept its invitation, as the number of these is strictly limited, and to inform us before 15 December of the notes and comments you wish to see featured in the catalog. The Brussels Art Exposition was formed six years earlier, in 1883, in response to the strict control and more commercial policies of the Paris Salon, the most prestigious art exposition in Europe. For over two centuries, art critics and buyers regarded the Paris Salon as the premier source of the best fine art. Many European painters became well-known in the art world because their work was displayed and sold at the Salon. The Paris Salon's preeminence made it difficult for artists and styles that had been rejected by the Salon to break into the public arena. It's the story of the indie artist. And so in response, Octave Maus, an artist and a lawyer, gathered a board of 10 other artists 
and put together an exposition of their own. And they invited nine other international artists to show their work as well. And they called themselves the 20. In 1889, as the 20 began planning the 1890 Expo, they discussed which artists should round out their company. And they all agreed that Vincent van Gogh should be invited, along with Paul Cezanne, Paul Signac, Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, Alfred Sisley, and Paul Gauguin, among others. Each time Mouse's letter caught Vincent's eye, he sorted out the question a little bit more in his mind. He thought, okay, the orchard in blossom, the sunflowers, a couple of the sunflowers, not Starry Night, that's not me. The cypresses, not that either, but the red vineyard. Yeah, the red vineyard. And after settling the matter, he put down his brush and he grabbed a piece of paper and he wrote, Sir, I accept with pleasure your invitation to exhibit. Here is the list of canvases I intend for you. One, sunflowers. Two, sunflowers. Three, the ivy. Four, orchard in blossom. Five, Wheat field with rising sun. Six, the red vineyard. All these canvases are number 30 canvases. I am perhaps exceeding the four meters of room, but as I believe that the six together thus chosen will make a rather varied color effect, perhaps you will find a way of placing them. Vincent van Gogh, 20 November, 1889. One year before receiving this invitation from Mouse, on October 2nd, 1888, Vincent wrote a letter to his friend and fellow painter, Eugene Bosch. This is that letter. When Vincent wrote this letter, he had no idea how his seemingly passing references to Eugene's sister, Anna, and this vineyard near Mount Majeur would later be joined as an indelible and complicated part of his story. The letter read in part, I'd very much like to ask you to do an exchange with me of one of your studies of the coal mines. Is your sister Anna also doing the miners? There's certainly work for two people there. I believe that it's very fortunate for you that the two of you both do painting in your house. Uh, well, I have to go work in the vineyard near Mount Majeure. It's all purplish yellow green under a blue sky, a beautiful color motif. Good handshake and good luck and much success in your work, ever yours, Vincent. The vineyard that he mentioned became the subject of the only painting that he sold during his lifetime, the Red Vineyard. And Anna Bosch, Eugene's sister, was the person who bought it. She and her brother were admirers of Van Gogh's work, but even more than that, they were his friends. Often when people think of Vincent van Gogh, their minds go to sunflowers, or they go to the irises, or to starry night. But to understand the story of the Red Vineyard, we have to locate it in the greater body of Vincent's work and also try to understand the artist himself. Vincent painted the Red Vineyard on November 4th, 1888, from memory, in the space of one day. The scene depicts the annual grape harvest in southern France known as the Vendage. Coming from Holland, the Vendage fascinated Vincent. There was something about it that was mystical and magical and had a rhythm to it. It had this rhythm of the ingathering of humanity and land in harmony together. People worked and then they enjoyed a return on their labor. 
one Van Gogh scholar said this. He said, these grape harvesters were people that Van Gogh felt he could relate to by the fact that they were working with nature in its rhythms and not against it. The harvesters in this painting, they don't look haggard. They look bathed in the warmth of the afternoon sun. They look fulfilled in their work as part of the order of things. And Vincent thought this was beautiful and he wished it for himself. When Vincent wrote about the Red Vineyard to Eugene Bosch before he painted it and to his brother Theo after he painted it, he spoke more of the colors that he saw than of any one aspect of the harvest itself. It was the color that caught his attention. To Eugene Bosch, he wrote, it's all purplish yellow green under a blue sky, a beautiful color motif. And to Theo, two days after completing the painting, he wrote, on Sunday, if you'd been with us, you would have seen a red vineyard, all red like red wine. And in the distance, it turned to yellow and then a green sky with the sun, the earth after the rain, violet sparkling yellow here and there where it caught the reflection of the setting sun. As an artist, Vincent van Gogh understood the tension that artists from every generation have known. And that is that commercial success facilitates the ability to continue working. It costs time and money to make art. And money from the work that he created could buy him time to make more. His lack of commercial success discouraged him, as it would anybody who had worked at something for the better part of a decade, believing that it was his life's calling without ever, ever making a dime. Vincent was prone to depression. He was prone to mental illness, perhaps displayed most infamously when he cut off his own ear, or displayed most tangibly when he spent a year in an asylum in Saint-Rémy-de-Provence. His psychological and mental struggles added a layer of despondency to his commercial failings. Though no one can say precisely what was happening inside of him on that July afternoon in 1890, when it seems he surrendered to despair and pulled the trigger, there can be little doubt that a sense of professional futility at least played a role. In 1891, after the death of Vincent's, or the, the year after Vincent's death, 1891, the year after he died, art critic Octave Merbeau compared Vincent to his Dutch predecessor, the master himself, Rembrandt. And Mirbeau wrote this. He said, Van Gogh does not always adhere to the discipline nor to the sobriety of the Dutch master, but he often equals his eloquence and his prodigious ability to render life. That same year, both Paris and Brussels, the year after he died, held retrospectives of Vincent's work. Other retrospectives were later shown in Denmark and Norway and Sweden and Finland and Berlin over the course of the rest of the 1890s, making Vincent van Gogh one of the most celebrated artists in Europe by the turn of the century. Had he lived just a few more years, he would have seen this happen. But for Vincent, this was all unimaginable. And it was deeply frustrating the longer he went without any commercial success, the more feverishly he painted. 
And the more canvases that he amassed, the greater and more objectively measurable his failure appeared. When he held that pistol in his hand in that wheat field in 1890, gathering his nerve, he did not know that the world that he wanted to leave was beginning to love him as an artist. Vincent sent off his six paintings, and when the time came, the Brussels Art Expo arranged them as he requested, and his canvases were displayed alongside the works of Cezanne and Signac and Toulouse-Lautrec and Gauguin, all painters who were there on the leading edge of post-impressionism. And as it happens with any artist on the leading edge of a new thing, a new era, many embraced Vincent's work as exciting, as refreshing, as new, but many others rejected it as being inferior work born of youthful swagger with no respect for the discipline of the craft. The Belgian symbolist painter Henry de Groo, who was a member of the 20, felt this way about Vincent's work. In fact, de Groo found Vincent's art so distasteful that he refused to allow his work to be hung alongside what he called quote, the abominable pot of sunflowers by Monsieur Vincent. De Groo's opposition, though, proved to be very revealing because what seemed so obvious to him, that Vincent van Gogh was a hack, was a view the other members of the 20 did not share. Later, at the expo's opening dinner, when de Groo called Vincent, quote, an ignoramus and a charlatan, all hell broke loose. Octave Mouse described the scene as it unfolded like this. At the other end of the table, Lautrec suddenly bounced up with his arms in the air and he shouted that it was an outrage to criticize so great an artist. And de Groo retorted, tumult, seconds were appointed. Paul Signac announced coldly that if Lautrec were killed, he would assume the quarrel himself. And that night, the 20 expelled DeGruy from the expo. They canceled him. <laughs> and the next day, he returned cap in hand to apologize. And they allowed him to resign and withdraw his work on his own volition. And Vincent Van Gogh had no idea that any of this had happened because he wasn't there. He did not know that these artists that he so admired had risen to defend his honor and validate his brilliance. He did not know. And Vincent's paintings went on to be among the most discussed at the expo. And before the event was over, Anna Bosch, a member of the 20, purchased the Red Vineyard, this friend of Vincent's, for 400 francs, which would be roughly $2,000 in today's economy. Let's look at Vincent by the numbers. When Vincent learned of the sale of the Red Vineyard, he wrote self-deprecatingly to his mother these words. Theo informed me that they'd sold one of my paintings in Brussels for 400 francs. In comparison with other prices, including the Dutch ones, this isn't much, but that's why I try to be productive in order to be able to keep working at reasonable prices. 
And if we have to try to earn our living with our hands, then I have an awful lot of expenses to make up for. A look at the output and volume of Vincent's work, especially in the last years of his life, shines a fascinating and heartbreaking light on the nature of his genius and his productivity and the significance of the sale of the Red Vineyard. And here, friends, is the part where I intend to break your hearts. Vincent finished around 860 complete oil paintings over the course of his life as a painter. During this same period of time, he also produced another 1,240 works in the form of watercolor sketches and prints, and he wrote over 900 letters, 650 of them to his brother and benefactor, Theo. So all told, this comes to just over 3,000 individual works of art and writing that we know of from Vincent. How much time does such prolific output require? For the sake of comparison, let's set aside Vincent's 2,200 letters, watercolor sketches, and prints, and let's consider just the 860 paintings, just those. How does that production quantity compare to other well-known painters. Rembrandt produced roughly 600 oil paintings during his career, which spanned about 40 years. Claude Monet, Vincent van Gogh's contemporary, painted around 2,500 paintings, and he did this over the course of 60 years. Paul Cezanne painted 900 canvases over about 40 years. And so on average, Rembrandt completed 15 canvases per year. Monet completed 42 canvases per year. Cezanne completed about 23 canvases per year. Rembrandt and Monet and Cezanne and many others had time on their side. They worked for decades. Vincent, however, did not. His painting career lasted only nine years. Vincent painted from late 1881 through the July of 1890, and that's it. He painted from the age of 28 to the age of 37. Before that, he worked as an art dealer, and before that, he served as a missionary. The 860 canvases that Vincent painted during his short career averages out to 96 canvases per year. By comparison, his annual his average annual output doubles Monet, triples Cezanne, and quadruples Rembrandt. But Van Gogh's annual average alone doesn't tell the story because his output was far from consistent. Over the first half of his painting life from 1881 to 1884, he averaged 21 paintings for, per year. That's the first four columns there. But between 1885 and 1889, the second half of his career, that number jumps to 130 canvases per year. That works out to one complete painting nearly every three days for five years straight uninterrupted. This does not take into account the fact that during that five-year span from 1885 to 1889, Vincent relocated a few times, he had personal and medical crises that would take him away from his easel for weeks on end. Doctors would forbid him from painting. 
the most fascinating year of Vincent's career in terms not only of output, but also health was the last year of his life. 1890, the year that he sold the Red Vineyard. Remember, Vincent died midway through that year in July. July 29th of these complications of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound to the abdomen. During that half year, he produced 108 finished canvases. Although that total is 61 less than his most prolific year, 1888, the year that he painted the Red Vineyard, and 26 fewer than 1889, the 108 canvases of 1890 does not represent a decline in production. Rather, it represents a shocking increase because he died during the summer, which means he was on pace to finish close to 200 paintings that year. But it's, it's the monthly breakdown of his output in 1890 before he died that is even more startling. Between January and April, he painted just 18 paintings total in those three months, which means he could not have done much the following three months besides eat and sleep and paint. Between May and July of 1890, Vincent worked at a frenetic pace and his art bore the evidence. In the St. Louis Art Museum in the Impressionist Gallery, there is a Van Gogh from June of 1890 called Vineyards with a View of Auvers. And the heavily applied paint in the lower left corner bears the distinct impression of the cross hatchings of another canvas, suggesting the painting was finished and set in a stack with others before it was completely dry. Of course it was. Why? Because this painting was one of an estimated 42 that he painted that month. And they're the paintings you see in the museums. He painted another 24 that May. Sorry, that's the view of Auvers in St. Louis. He painted another 24 that May and another 24 that July, meaning in the three months before he died, Vincent painted 90 of that year's 108 paintings, a three-month average of one finished painting per day. Imagine him in those last months of his life. It's this young man. He's 37 years old. He doesn't look 37, he looks much older. See him mixing his colors and stretching his canvases and preening his brushes. His sketches are like recipes. And they lie scattered around the room as the gaunt artist denies himself food and makes coffee from the carbon scrapings of burnt toast so that he doesn't have to stop. Imagine the eternal bits of color under his fingernails and on his beard and deep in the seams of his clothes. This person, an accidental painting in the same spectrum as the canvas of the day and the fury of those three months during which he completed an average of one canvas every single day for three months uninterrupted. Now... Add back in 2,200 other watercolors, sketches, prints, 
and letters that he composed during those nine years. And we are left with a heartbreaking picture, are we not? Somewhere in that flurry of motion between painter and canvas was this man who was held captive by this insatiable appetite to capture the world that he wanted while being unable to connect with the world that he had. And it seemed to be killing him. What do we do with this story? What do we make of Vincent's story? What of the futility that seems to belong to any creative endeavor? Vincent said this, he said, a great fire burns within me, but nobody stops to warm themselves at it. And passers-by only see a wisp of smoke. What of that great burning fire in each of us that's just perceived by others as little more than a wisp of smoke? C.S. Lewis said, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Vincent's secret is ours too, and it's a secret as old as time. And it's a question as sacred as scripture. Does my life contribute anything of value to this world? And if so, how do I know? Ecclesiastes put the question to poetry. I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Vincent left his work to be enjoyed by we who did not toil for it but we remember him and we remember him not just for his art. We remember him for his words and his life and his suffering. And we do more than remember him. We relate to him because he is the striving man from Ecclesiastes learning firsthand about the vanity of toil under the sun while trying to live and move and breathe and do his work under heaven. He chases after the sun and he never reaches it. He bears the weight of a creation subjected to futility and he longs for the renewal of all things. And this is the power of art. It happens in time and space, but it points to the eternal. It takes the objects and ideas that it finds lying scattered on the floor of creation, the things of the here and the now, and shapes and assembles them into something that belongs to a world outside of time, like a Van Gogh painting. And the trick for the artist is to believe this is the true nature of your work, especially while you're in the process of making it, whether it sells or not. Annie Dillard said, beauty and grace are performed. Whether or not we will sense them, the least we can do is try to be there. The artist's work is to try to be there. Sometimes our work is to stand and knock on the door of glory. 
and whenever possible, siphon these little wisps of smoke from those places where we catch a glimpse of the light so that others might see and believe. What can we show each other of glory anyway except light and shadow? What glory can anyone see in us except for wisps of smoke, traces of that great burning fire? And is that not enough? Is it not enough to show enough to prove that there's more? If you're ever in the south of France in autumn, you too may lift your eyes and see it. A red vineyard, all red like red wine, and in the distance it turns to yellow, and then a green sky with the sun, the earth after the rain violet, sparkling yellow here and there where it catches the reflection of the setting sun. And thanks to Vincent, you may find yourself confronted with a glory that is deeper than you expected. But even still, you will only be seeing a fraction of what is actually there. You will only see a wisp of smoke. All things are full of weariness. Thank you.